Most Canadians know the name Stephen Truscott. Convicted of raping and murdering Lynn Harper in the Clinton area at the age of 14, Truscott spent the next decade behind bars and nearly 50 years being considered guilty of the crime by both the justice system and by many people in this country. However, as we now know, Truscott was not guilty. In this episode of the 519 podcast called The Stephen Truscott Saga and the Woman Who Set Things Right, we look at how Truscott was convicted and how he and his wife Marlene fought to clear his name. Here's your host, Craig Needles. Imagine being 14 in the middle of a summer vacation from school. You're playing sports, hanging out with friends, fishing, swimming. The amount of freedom at that age is something that remains elusive for most of your life. But for almost all of us, we can look back and be thankful that we got to live it, that we had it. But for Stephen Truscott and Lynn Harper, it was all taken away in the span of one evening in 1959. Truscott and Harper knew each other well. They were in the same school and same class. They were often seen together. And when Harper went missing... Truscott was considered the prime suspect. This is Julian Scher, investigative journalist and author of Until You Are Dead, Stephen Truscott's Long Ride into History. So 1950s, a small town, Ontario, Clinton, uh, an airbase. You know, Canada was a, I like to say Canada wasn't just a different time back then. It was a different country. Right? It was very traditional, very conservative, even more so on a military base. Uh, Stephen's 14, Lynn Harper is 13. She's the daughter of an officer. He's the son of a more lowly, regular man on the base. Um, They're friends in the same classroom. They hang around together. They actually um, are dancing together at a party on the, the Friday before the events that would change their lives forever in early June 1959. It's a hot summer day on Tuesday. And according to all accounts, the the kids are kind of playing around the school. It's around seven o'clock. And Lynn Harper asks Stephen, by Stephen's account, for a lift down the county road. Uh, People do see her getting on his bike. They drive down this county road. And in order to get to the highway, you have to cross a bridge where kids are swimming, fishing. And at least two witnesses... Um, young boys, see Stephen and Lynn cross the bridge. That means they already went past the forest, the woods, known as Lawson's Bush. They drive past. By Stephen's account, he lets her off at the highway. She says uh, she wants to uh, either go hitchhiking or go look at ponies. It's not clear exactly what she says. He leaves, turns back, and from the bridge... From the distance, he can see her getting into a a big, large car. Stephen comes back to the to the playground uh, at the school, you know, again, around 730, a little past then. He hasn't been gone that long. He looks perfectly normal. He's not sweating. His clothes aren't disheveled or anything. Hangs around with with his friends, goes home uh, and is home by about eight. Lynn never shows up, never comes home. As it goes, when any 13-year-old is expected to come home and doesn't arrive, panic did begin to settle in. Lynn didn't come home that night, and she didn't come home the next morning. People were speculating about her whereabouts in the community, but nobody at that point was able to find her. Her absence unsettled everybody in the Clinton area. Uh, Frantic search, panic. Uh, Her body will be discovered 
two days later. When her body is discovered, um, she has been raped. Uh, she is uh, half naked. Her, her clothes have been neatly folded in the bushes that are between the school and the bridge. And everybody, the police quickly realized that Stephen was one of the last people who saw her, by all accounts. You know, as, as rapes and murders go, you know, a, a young teenage girl um, is, 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 you know, is particularly heinous. So it seems unlikely that somebody who did that would either not have done it before or would not continue after. Again, Stephen Truscott, you know, a young boy who, you know, has obviously had no criminal record um, at 14. And since he's been released, hasn't even had a speeding ticket. You know what I mean? So so he certainly doesn't fit the profile. The nature of the crime scene shouldn't have pointed to a 14-year-old boy. The body was staged and meticulously set up. There's a level of cruelty and gruesomeness that a child in most cases couldn't even begin to have imagined, let alone carry out. But Stephen was the last person to see Lynn alive, so he was brought in for questioning. Obviously, it made perfect sense for the police to not only question, but maybe even consider Stephen as one of the leading suspects, right? He was the, the last person seen with Lynn by many people. The police, uh, you know, did not notify his parents. You know, Stephen <laughs> told me back then, he said, look, back then, the, you know, the police uh, said, jump, you said how high, right? He was a military boy, total respect. For the police, his parents had no reason to think anything was 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 amiss. Um, so obviously they were shocked, you know, when the police um, charged him with with murder. No one saw the murder charge coming, especially the Truscott family. And it begs the question, how did the police land on a 14 year old as the main suspect in their investigation? How did the evidence justify the arrest of Stephen Truscott? The trial started with tales from a police investigation that was overpowered with tunnel vision towards Stephen. Put simply, they shoehorned Stephen into the case. They barely even thought of other potential suspects. This started with the timeline of the murder, a very tight one that narrowly placed him at the scene within the parameters of Lynn's death. The blatant misjustice was led by the town's coroner. The local coroner, a doctor named Dr. Penniston, based on st stomach contents, which literally meant holding a jar up to the light and looking at the food in her stomach, told the court that the time of death was between 7.15 and 7.45, which seemed like a remarkable narrow window. And if he was right, Stephen did kill her. There's no doubt about that. Stephen was the only one with her at that time. That would mean the two boys who saw him cross the bridge with her and come back alone were lying or wrong. You know, the only witnesses were these little kids, right? Particularly the police had to shake the testimony of the, of the two boys who saw Stephen cross the bridge. And they were unshakable. I mean, imagine you're a 10-year-old, you're an 11-year-old, you're brought to court, you're saying, what did you see? And you've got a, you know, the prosecutor cross-examining you, calling you a liar. Are you sure? Later in their summation, they said it was like it was part of a conspiracy that Stephen got him to to lie. We tracked down one of the boys who at the time was was uh, 11. And to this day, he said, I know what I saw. I saw them both. He, he said, you know, they came right by me. Um, and then I saw Stephen come back alone. So remarkably, the kids, uh, those little boys never change their, their story. Aside from the highly questionable coroner's timeline, there was other evidence law enforcement used that didn't quite add up. They said that they were tire tracks that kind of showed a bicycle tire tracks along the path that said uh, were probably made by him. 
the tire tracks on the on the uh, on the path. Well, it had been an exceptionally hot and dry period that June. So those tire tracks were not made the night of the murder on Tuesday. They'd been there for weeks. Even small parts of the story were changed to slant towards a guilty verdict. They took aim at Truscott's testimony. The parents had testified she would never hitchhike. We discovered that the minute the police show up uh, close to midnight on that Tuesday night um, and ask the because the parents are frantic, their little Lynn has not come back home. We found a police report that said the parents think um, she may have hitchhiked to see her grandmother, right? So what's the first thing the, pol- the parents tell the police? She may have hitchhiked, right? That's never revealed in court, which would have supported Stephen's story. Stephen said, but I don't know. She asked, she said she wanted to go down to the highway and I saw her hitchhike, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody believed him in the court because the parents said our daughter never hitchhiked. And yet, you know, what the police never disclosed is that's exactly what they told the police. Later, it was found that wasn't the only piece of information that police kept out of the courtroom. The coroner's report was so precise and damning for Stephen that it was a little suspicious. In the initial autopsy report, we found the notebooks from the police, and it lists all the details of what he found. Nowhere in that night when the doctor is looking at the body, is there a time of death? And that's really significant, because what's the one thing a a police writing down notes in an autopsy is going to want to know? How did she die and when? How did she die was clear. There was no when. In other words, the doctor, the night of the autopsy, did not give a time of death. He only later in subsequent days and weeks specified the time of death after the police had arrested Stephen Truscott and after it was important that they fix the time of death. So that was hugely suspicious. Back in 1959, we didn't have CSI, uh, but now, you know, uh, you know, experts often talk about the CSI effect or the white lab coat effect, that jur- the jurors tend to believe experts, especially doctors, medical experts. So here's this doctor, Dr. John Penniston, respected local doctor, who says, as I mentioned, absolutely, you know, the stomach contents determined she died between 715 and 745. And the the prosecutor said that timeline tightens like a vice around Stephen Truscott's neck. And he was totally right. So what's wrong with that testimony? Well, the first thing is scientifically today, coroners and doctors will say that's complete BS. Stomach contents tell you nothing except what was the last thing somebody ate. Right. So all we know is what her last meal was. It doesn't tell us where her, when she died. You can't estimate the time of death from stomach contents because all kinds of things happen to your digestive system, especially rape and murder tends to throw a shock into the system. So you, it, it doesn't help you fix the time. So his science was wrong. What became the most tragic about police focusing on Stephen Truscott was the ignorance of other suspects that could very well have committed the crime. The real murderer will likely never be known. Theoretically, Stephen could have even witnessed the real killer in that car with the yellow sticker. The police said there was no way that Stephen, standing at the bridge, which was, you know, uh, a fair ways from the road. I've been there, but you could see the road. There's no way he could have seen a car, much less he caught a glimpse of something yellow on the on the back fender. Um, so the police testified, no, he couldn't have seen. He must have lied. And yet if anybody goes to that bridge, as we did, (laughs) and does a test, 
you can, you know, you can't make out a license number, but you can clearly make out the shape of a car. You'd be able to see a flash of color. Look, a young girl has been raped. She's 13 years old. Where does this take place? This doesn't take place like in downtown Toronto. This takes place right on a military base, a military base that by definition is filled with, you know, thousands on the men. And the police would have discovered that there was a, a soldier on the airbase who um, uh, was later discovered to be driving around, picking up young girls in his car. At the exact time of Lynn's arrest, he uh, uh, checks himself in for psychiatric treatment. He's having huge uh, issues. Um, he will eventually die, but his name is Kalachuk. We pull up his file from the military police, and we're doing this, you know, decades later, but the police had access to them. We're not saying that he's the guilty one, but we are saying he, along with other unknown people, were surely as worthy of an investigation as Stephen Truscott. Not only was David Kalachuk a very good suspect, Lynn Harper's murder happened at a very strange time in southwestern Ontario's history. In the London area alone, from the years 1959 to 1984, there were upwards of nine active serial killers during that time frame. Any one of them could have been held under suspicion as Lynn's killer. Yet, in the eyes of the law, Stephen Truscott continued to be the only one who fit the profile. The murder investigation took mere months to be completed, and the trial took a meager two weeks to find a verdict. On September 30th, 1959, Stephen Truscott was found guilty of the rape and murder of Lynn Harper, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. The sentence shocked people not only around Canada, but around the entire world. Canada became the place that hangs children, and innocent children at that. It was an international humiliation, but fortunately, it was eventually corrected. I discovered cabinet documents from the uh, federal cabinet many, many decades later that showed how the cabinet decided to commute a sentence, not because they thought he was innocent, just they thought it was horrifically embarrassing for Canada to hang a 14-year-old. So they commute his sentence to life. He's sentenced as a 14-year-old to life in prison. Truscott lived the next seven years of his life labeled as a murderer, and the public fully believed he was a murderer. When journalist Isabel Laborde brought this case back into the public spotlight for debate. Back then, the media was totally subservient to the courts and justice and the police. Nobody questioned the justice system. When an incredibly brave woman, a journalist named Isabel Laborde, in the early 60s, decides to look at this case and publishes uh, a groundbreaking book called The Trial of Stephen Truscott. She looks at the trial and she didn't have access to a lot of the documents that we did, but she actually ordered the transcript and read the transcript, something that no journalist had done. Nobody questioned the trial in, the, in 1959. She did. And when she does it, she is pilloried in the press, um, not just for the results of her investigation, but literally for even questioning the system, something that you and I do now as a matter of course. Now, when there's a trial, we don't necessarily believe the police or the judge or the lawyers or the defendants. Uh, we, just because somebody says they're innocent, we don't believe it. We as journalists investigate, we look at the facts, and we come to a conclusion. That wasn't done until Isabel did it. Isabel highlighted all the ways Stephen was wrong in his initial trial, and the pressure on the justice system became significant. It was clear the case deserves another look. He appeals to the Supreme Court. 
It's now 1967, so almost a, you know, a decade after the murder. And the Supreme Court invites a whole bunch of doctors and experts to relook at the medical evidence. We discovered a hidden document where Dr. Penniston makes what he calls an agonizing reappraisal. In other words, the doctor who pretty much sent Stephen Truscott to the gallows admits that looking at it again, the time of death could be hours, if not days later than the Tuesday night. He actually goes as far as two days later. That is unbelievable, right? That testimony completely exonerates Stephen. It certainly doesn't point the finger at him. What's even more shocking is he sends that report to the head of the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, who happens to be Harold Graham, who was the homicide cop who arrested Stephen in the first place. What does Harold Graham do with this shocking new evidence that is completely exculpatory? He sits on it. He hides it. That never goes to the Supreme Court. So we have a second huge injustice. Not only did the police lie and hide the evidence and change the evidence in the first trial, 1959, but they hid vital new evidence from the Supreme Court. For the second time, Stephen Truscott was found guilty. He was paroled in 1969 and was released, still a guilty man. The label of murderer set to stay with him for the rest of his life. And you've got to ask, how can something this terrible happen to a kid? Just close your eyes for imagine. Imagine you're 14. <laughs> you know, you're, Stephen was great in baseball. You know, you're, you're just a 14-year-old boy. We've all been there, whether you're a 14-year-old boy or a girl. Your life is snatched away from you. You're accused of this horrible crime. You're about to die. Stephen thought when he heard banging at the jail that they were building a gallows. You're sent to prison for 10 years. Um, You then get out on parole, but you're still a convicted murderer and you have a hidden life. You raise your kids secretly. They don't know who you are. Uh, Your neighbors don't know who you are. You've changed your name. Eventually, Truscott had had enough. He was done with the secrecy and the hiding. He was done with the dinosaur-sized skeleton living in his closet. With the help of his wife, Marlene, Stephen knew it was time to talk. This is how he met Julian, who would feature him in his book and on a series called The Fifth Estate on the CBC. It brought Stephen's story back into the eyes of millions of Canadians. And by doing this, it showed the true power of journalism. And what struck me is his openness and his willingness. He said, absolutely, go for it. In other words, he didn't say, no, no, I'm innocent. You must protect me. Um, you know, you will. He said, yep, just go for the truth. I'm confident. And, and that was a good way to start because I felt pretty good about his, his willingness and his, his lack of any fear of, of what we would turn out. I'm most proud of our work on the Stephen Truscott story. One, because it helped change a man's life. Uh, but two, it just, I think, shows to my mind, and I hope to the public, why independent investigative journalism is so important, right? Why, you know, we are the truth seekers, and we have a responsibility to challenge power, to challenge authority, to challenge the accepted myths of the time, uh, not to pick sides. I'm very proud about that, and I I hope people uh, read the book, Um, they can go to my website, which is just my name, www.julianshare.com. You could find out things about the book, uh, catch the movie, Marlene, and support independent investigative journalism. It's hard in Canada now. A lot of the newspapers are shutting down. Uh, The TV networks aren't doing, are having a hard time 
getting the same resources to do the investigation. You know, we spent two years. CBC was willing to give us two years. We did other things, but they largely let us devote two years of our work um, for that documentary. And it's important that that kind of journalism be allowed to continue. That's the end of part one of this 519 podcast series, The Stephen Truscott Story. In part two, the final part of the series, we look at Stephen's grueling years in the shadows and shed light on the woman who pushed him back into the spotlight and brought Stephen the justice that was years in the making. That would be Marlene Truscott, who brought this whole story to an end. She said, Stephen, you go to bed a convicted murderer, you wake up a convicted murderer, you're still on parole for murder, right? You have to clear your name. And she was the driving force in his fight for justice and in keeping the family together. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written by Craig Needles, Haley Chang, and Patrick Magermans, and hosted by Craig Needles. In part two of the Stephen Truscott saga and The Woman Who Set Things Right, we look at the new film Marlene, which tells the story of Truscott's conviction being overturned through her eyes. It's available right now on your favorite podcast app or at the519podcast.com. The 519 Podcast is part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.